physical attraction is no longer the number one determinant someone would want to continue to see. Authenticity is really what is driving relationships today. The number one reason couples break up is in the inability to resolve conflict. This is a massive topic. This is big. I'm your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and I'm on a mission to uncover the maze of health myths around nutrition and well-being and guide you through my seven pillars of health. Join me on a journey of discovery and connection and put up a pew for a front row seat to the most exclusive health conversation of our time. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Modern romance is a tricky task. Our hectic minds, the anxiety of dating apps and ghosting culture has made it a treacherous playing field. Compared to the 1990s, marriage in the UK has significantly declined. So what is the key to finding and keeping romance, especially in the digital age? My guest today is Paul Carrick Brunson, Tinder's head of global insight and co-host of Married at First Sight. So he knows a thing or two about modern relationships and dating. To start off with, I've asked him something that I think a lot of us are struggling with, and that's how can we get better at communicating effectively in relationships? Paul? Yes. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you very much. I am so happy that we've first just done this in person. Yes. And that you're here today. So I really want to navigate to start with the top three ways. I'm just going to go straight in with some really quick <laughs> Here one. it is. Here it is. But let's get it in. Here it is. Of how can we communicate effectively? Because I think bad communication is one of the biggest pitfalls in a relationship. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Well, first, let me say it's an honor to be here with you, oh, uh, and, you and to do this in person. I agree. This is a topic that deserves to be done in person. Right. You know, uh, so thank you for having me. I'm with you in terms of communication. I'd say the component mm. of communication that is central is conflict resolution. The number one reason why couples break up whether they're in a long-term relationship or even a short-term relationship, mm -hmm. we see the list. Kaufman in the United States puts out a survey every year and they're like, number one is finance, number two is infidelity, number three is in the in-laws, right? But I always look at that list and say, you know what, I, I respect what you're doing, mm -hmm. but you're wrong. Where the issue lies is in the inability to resolve the conflict in mm. each one of those categories. It's not because of your in-laws that you're breaking up or because of finance that you're breaking up. It's because of the fact that you can't resolve the conflict around the fact that your partner is spending money that you don't or because your partner doesn't feel like you are representing them in front of their parents, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So it's the resolution of the conflict. And something that um, Esther Perel says all the time, and you got to love her. It's like I mean, she needs to come on the show at some point. We've got to get her on. Oh my god! It, if, if she if she comes on the show, just invite me so I could man the cameras. You know what I, I mean? Will. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just clean the mic for her. You know, dust off her seat for her. Yeah, she's um she's 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 incredible. Mm. Um, and one of the things that she says, among the many things that she says that are golden gems, is that. When we typically argue, there's really three underlying issues that we're arguing about, right? Mm -hmm. So one is there's a power dynamic or power imbalance mm -hmm. that we have an issue with. Another is closeness, right? Uh, level of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And then the third is, is trust, right? So when you think about the, the, the communication, ultimately it's about 
can we resolve those underlying issues? Mm. If we can, we can get through anything. We can get through anything. So, so I'm with you. Mm. Communication, but ultimately it's about the inability that we have to resolve the conflict within our communication. So how can we approach? So I have figured out that I don't like conflict. So I kind of have always tried to deter and put off those hard conversations. But actually, now I'm starting to try and go, no, actually putting them off is just going to make the situation much larger and the landscape much harder to attack. And so how can we approach conversations that, might have conflict in, but don't escalate that conflict. How can we try and have these in a really balanced way? Because I think that's just something that we're never taught about. No, no, we're, we're not. It's, it's crazy. It's like, to that point is, I was taught trigonometry mm. in my high school in the in the US. Mm. I have not used trigonometry once in my adult <laughs> life. Like, do you use trigonometry? I mean, I can't even do math. <laughs> I barely passed yeah. my math GCSE. I mean, no. No, no. Not at all. No. But how often do you have to uh, negotiate or compromise with someone? Mm -hmm. How often do you have to do active listening? I mean, this is what you're doing right now. It's like, these are the fundamental skills that mm. I really believe that we should be taught. Mm. Uh, but to, to your question, there's, there's, there's so many. Like, this is a massive topic. And it stretches all the way back to how were we taught about communication? Mm -hmm. Right. Because we learn our communication style through it's a bit of nature and it's mm -hmm. a bit of nurture. Mm -hmm. So part of it is, well, how did our, our parents or the, our first caregivers, how did they communicate? And I'm not talking about attachment style here. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about our communication, mm -hmm. because in many households, what was appropriate was to be, you know, like uh, for me, you know, very Caribbean household. It was, you know what? You sit over there and you don't say a word. Right. That's what you do. Like the, the, the adults are going to be over here talking, mm -hmm. you know, and you kids are going to be over there and you don't say a word. Mm -hmm. Right. So it, it depends on how we were taught it. But ultimately, if I was to say break down like my magic three ways, one is to understand how important the context is. Mm -hmm. Context is more important than content in a in communication or in a disagreement. Mm -hmm. So for example, let's say that, um, you know, you and your partner are having an argument and you're arguing it and you're, you're in your kitchen. Step outside of your house. Step outside of your house. The moment you step outside of your house, I guarantee you the communication is going to be different, mm -hmm. right? So the key is- What if all, it's 2 a.m. in the morning? You know, <laughs> you, you, you know, actually, that's a great question, but that's gonna get to my second point. Okay. Don't argue at 2 a.m. in the morning mm. because what we have to understand is that, and this goes back to the to the content a little bit, is that how we feel. Mm -hmm. If it's 2 a.m., you're most likely what? You're probably hungover. You're knackered. <laughs> it's like, you're more than knackered. You're hungover. <laughs> you're at 2 a.m. But, 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 but you're tired. Yeah. You might be hungry, right? You, you don't argue. You don't have any type of serious conversation mm -hmm. in that context. So, mm -hmm. so, so the context, like pay attention to the context. Mm -hmm. That's one. Two is don't argue when you're upset. Mm. And that sounds wild because you're like, well, that's why I'm upset because I'm arguing. Like, I'm emotionally charged. Yeah. Yeah. It's that when you're doing that, when you're emotionally charged, you will not be responding. You'll be reacting. Yeah. A response is a considered delivery. Mm -hmm. A reaction is, 
I can't believe, oh, right, right. Mm-hmm. So the key there is that you want to cool down and mm-hmm. calm down. Mm-hmm. At minimum, it takes 20 minutes, mm-hmm. right? At maximum, it may take you four hours. And actually, if it is a super emotionally charged conversation and you are actually triggered in it, clinically triggered, mm-hmm. it could take you days, it could take you weeks. Mm-hmm. But the key is that you have to calm down to a state where you feel comfortable, you feel Mm -hmm. calm. So that's number two, Mm -hmm. is that, uh, you know, make sure that you are calm Mm. when you're doing this. Mm. And the third thing is stay focused on one topic, one topic only, because the moment that you start saying, well, here's what you did five years ago, and then you did this other thing over here last week, and then the moment that you do that, you're putting the other person in a position of, okay, I just have to defend myself. Mm-hmm. So, so they're no longer interacting with you. They're mm-hmm. just in defense mode. Mm-hmm. So if you could focus on one topic, you can make sure that you both are in a state of calmness. And then you think about the context. It's like maybe you're, you're, you're having the discussion on a walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not hungry. You're not hungover. All of those elements will help you to have much much, much more effective conversation. And you know what? I don't know if you agree with this, but somebody once told me, when you do have them, set a timer and try and stick to that timer so it doesn't go on for hours, that you actually have this like half an hour where you sit down and you talk and what you did, you make the context, mm-hmm. you're aware, and that you actually just focus on that for that time period, and then you stop. Yeah, I, I like that because it, it keeps you focused on, on, on one piece, yeah. right? Um, it also makes ensures that you're not fatigued you know so so i do like that i mm. like that a lot it's like a nice structure to think about yes sarah i'm so sorry to cut in but since live well be well is all about health and well-being i need to tell you what great mental shape i'm in today since we started producing this podcast it seems that you've been on quite a health journey and seeing you blossom honestly fills me with joy. My sleep cycle's on point. My gut microbiome is in better shape than ever. I'm even doing HIIT workouts. Can you believe it? But the reason I rudely interrupted this interview is to tell you about the adaptogenic coffee that you've suggested to me earlier this week, which contains lion's mane mushroom and rhodiola. Two things I personally don't know much about. Perhaps you can enlighten me. Science shows that lion's mane mushroom is known to improve memory, mental clarity, concentration, and overall, just your brain health. And rhodiola is a powerful adaptogen known for its effects on stress levels and brain functioning. Okay, that's all sounding very exciting indeed. And I can confirm these shroomy coffees are absolutely delicious. And they come in these single sachets, which is incredibly convenient. But I don't really understand what makes them so special. So what exactly is adaptogenic coffee? The medicinal mushrooms and coffee are probably one of the most perfect pairings. You get all the benefits of regular coffee, which we do love, whilst minimising any side effects. So why does this happen? I know you're going to ask. Caffeine is a nootropic. It increases our alertness and our attention. But many of us will have experienced the increased levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which results in, sadly, the jitters, and anxiety. This has 100% worked wonders for me this week. So where can people get them? Okay, so if you want to try these at home, we have a special discount code from the amazing brand London Nootropics. And they have three different blends to choose from. So listen up, Sam. Here is your mix. You can have Zen. It's probably the most balancing. It's great if you're caffeine sensitive. Then you've got Mojo. 
this is perfect for that natural boost. If you're feeling a bit fatigued, it makes a really good pre-workout because of the cordyceps and also, get this, the Siberian ginseng. And my favourite to experience the effects of lion's mane and rhodiola, get yourself some of the Flow Blend. We've got a bit of a treat for the listeners, right? A discount code? Yes, we do, Sam. And I know that you love it because you love a discount. So all you need to do is use the code LIVEWELLBEWELL to get... 20% off at londonutropics.com. A box of each blend is only £15, so you're kind of getting a very good deal here. And subscriptions start at £12 a month, delivered straight to your door. Um, but something that I thought, right, and I know that this term red flag gets chucked around all the time, but when I was thinking about communication, for the person that's listening to this, now they could be a good communicator or a poor communicator. But when we look at how we communicate, I also think it's really important to understand how does your partner communicate, right? right? And are there any things, because somebody could be listening to this and doing all the steps that you're saying, whereas someone else is kind of not as sufficient as communicating as that person that feels that they've got all of this knowledge. How do they then navigate that situation? Like, What are the red flags to look out for? Because if they're doing these kind of three sets that you've said and maybe setting the timer and going out for a walk and not arguing at 2 a.m. and mm -hmm. and just focusing on the topic, sometimes their partner might not still be able to meet them in that sure. in that space, right? Sure. So how do they navigate that? Or what are kind of like the red flags to look out for if that other person isn't kind of meeting those kind of communication boundaries I want to put, put it in? Yeah. All right. So, so th this this is a, a, a difficult question. Mm. And the reason why is because I always say that it stretches back, right? It goes back and goes back. And ultimately, not all couples not only have the skills, but are even complementary in their communication styles. Mm. So I think it ultimately goes back to how we go about selecting a partner. I think this is very important. This is something that I write about in my book. It's like there are certain traits and characteristics we should be looking for. And I think two of those that add up to effective communication, one of that is, is emotional fitness. What is emotional fitness? Emotional fitness is about being uh, emotionally intelligent. Mm. right being emotionally aware and open being emotionally stable right and, and what does that really mean it means that i'm willing to emote i'm willing mm -hmm. to talk about how i feel and i'm interested in how you feel in challenging times and stress i am going to remain m me i'm mm -hmm. not going to change and turn into someone else that's emotionally stable right um uh emotionally intelligent i'm going to be not only aware, but I'm going to be looking for your emotions mm. and how certain things in the world make you feel, mm -hmm. right? So you, you need to have a partner that has some level of that because quite honestly, a lot of people don't. Mm. And the way that I think society, especially around, uh, you know, you've got collectivists and mm -hmm. individualism and i think the way that we're shifting in terms of in in the west is it's all about me 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 it's not about us 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 mm -hmm. and that reduces our emotional fitness iq so that's one and then secondly is you need to have someone who has uh you know understanding mm -hmm. and is open-minded and is curious right these are very important pieces in communication. So mm -hmm. the reason why I say this is such a challenging uh, question is yeah. because if, if you're not working with someone that has curiosity and they're open-minded and they're kind or emotionally fit, then you know what? 
every like you could go outside and argue, but it's still going to suck. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So so those are some base traits mm. that are very important in the selection of your partner. You wrote on Twitter, and I can't remember where it was, and this is relating to what you've just said, which is why my mind is now spiraling. Yeah. Because something that you wrote is one of the most important things in relationships is values. Yes. Yes. And I think that's the quote that you mentioned. And you said, you know, whether it's a partner, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a business partner. Yes. Because relationships don't just span to one another, right? It's how you communicate as a business partner. It's how you communicate in friendships and in family dynamics. And I read that. And it's something that, you know, we do a lot in our organization, the Be Well, talking about values, understanding what our values are. And I don't think that, you know, at school, when you were just speaking about earlier, we don't learn any of this stuff. So. Mm-hmm. It can be quite jarring when you say to someone, what's your values? And they go, and they just say what they think is appropriate as taking that time. And so when you're just kind of condensing that and and, and talking about the EQ and and meeting somebody halfway, do you think that people are listening to that maybe going, how do I know? Do you think that's maybe a good place to start saying, like, what's your values and like really taking time to think about it? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I would say, you know, the best time to work on your marriage Mm. or the best time to work on your relationship is before you're in the marriage, is before you have the relationship. Mm-hmm. The relationship that you have with yourself, it sounds very, very like, oh, woo-woo-y, but it truly is the relationship that you have with yourself is the most important relationship you will ever have. And so therefore, it's important to fundamentally understand who you are, mm. why you are. Mm. And it does begin with asking yourself, what, what are your values? Uh-huh. You know, and, and I think you beautifully linked it to communication because our values, I see our values as like our rule book to life. Mm. You have a certain set of values. I have a certain set of values. Now, it turns out we have a lot of mutual friends. <laughs> so we most likely have the same values. I'm like, what are your values? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we have the same values, right? But if we have different values, mm. that means that I see life differently. Mm. Therefore, I may do things that you may say are immoral or you would never do, but I would do because I, I value these these things over here. Mm. And so therefore, you could see how we would have a massive challenge in communicating with mm-hmm. each other. And therefore, it would be hard for us to be business partners, mm-hmm. right? Hard for us to be in a, a romantic relationship, mm-hmm. right? So the key is always about values. And to your point, most of us don't know what our values are. We may know what our interests are, but we don't know what our values are. And so how can someone understand what the values are? Because it sounds like a really generic question to ask back, but it's one of those things where I'm thinking if someone doesn't know what their values are, then they might just go, oh, well, I think kindness is a value and I think this is a value, but do they actually live by their values? And I find sometimes when I've asked people that questions, but they don't actually do it themselves, I'm like, well, that isn't your true value because you're not embodying that. Right. So it's actually really important to think about it. And I've linked this, you tell me what you think, to self-compassion. Yes. How much do you give yourself self-compassion? I think it's one of the most underrated spoken about areas. Mm. I bring it up a lot on this show and I brought it up recently with somebody this week. And I think like when it comes to relationship, and you said it so beautifully, the relationship we have with ourselves is always going to be the most important. Yes. And in relationships, we can sometimes direct that love to the other person and kind of forget about ourselves somewhat. So when we're thinking about like values, like how can we understand what they really are as opposed to just like predicting and saying, oh, I I think this is a value of mine without really knowing. I love this. So this is bringing me back to my matchmaking days. 
my wife and I started a matchmaking business in 2008. Um, you were so ahead of the time. <laughs> I can't handle it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I need, need to restart it now that in, in the UK. It's like the UK needs this. Um, I've got so many single, beautiful, wonderful women in my life that need you, Paul. Oh, my goodness. So, And I'm sure many beautiful women watching this show. Oh, well, we need to come out of retirement then. Yeah, we man. need to do this. Yeah. I mean, I will help you <laughs> invade the UK. All right, done. <laughs> Done. I'm gonna think about it now. I'm gonna think about it. I mean, th this is it was uh, it was a beautiful agency, uh, and one of what we worked on was how to determine our clients' values. Mm -hmm. So we came up with what we called the Saturday test, right? And the Saturday test was simply this: it was where do you spend your Saturday? So the whole idea was typically, you know, our clients they were off. They worked. They were hard charging Monday through Friday. Um, Sunday, they were already preparing for the week ahead, but on Saturday, that was their day. And I would sit down and say, okay, and I wouldn't say this is a values test. I'd just say, Saturday, tell me, where do you spend your time mm -hmm. and where do you spend your money? Not when you have to pay the bills. I get that, but I'm talking about your discretionary income. Where does it go? Mm -hmm. And I can almost guarantee that where we spend what we consider free time right? Not if you have to spend time with the kids or whatever, but I'm talking your free time and your free money, whatever that may be, <laughs> right? Wherever you spend that, mm. that is typically what you value. And the reason why that was a shocker, shocker to most people is because I would ask that and then I would wait, you know, maybe, you know, 10 more questions down the line. And I'd say, tell me about your values. And, I, and normally I'd get a totally different list. I'd get, oh, you know, I value religion. You know, um, I value family. I value, right? But then on Saturday, you know, there was nothing connected to religion. Sunday, there's nothing connected to re religion. <laughs> you know, no calls home to mom or dad. Or, like, there was no, it was like, I want to be away from family. And so. I need solace. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> So it is no normally that is a that's a great place to begin. Mm. Then the next place is to go, well, what lights you up? What makes you come alive? Mm. Because typically what we value is what makes us come to, to, mm -hmm. to life. And when we're feeding those values where, you know, self-esteem is going up. And so and it connects to self-compassion, you know, big one. Yep. So I, I, I would say that that's where to begin. Mm -hmm. And you may be shocked at what you truly value in this life. I'm just thinking, what a great first date question. Yeah. So anyone listening to this <laughs> that is going on a date or yes. seeing somebody in the early stages saying, what's your favorite thing to do on a Saturday? What do you do every weekend? It's such like an underlining way of saying, what are your values? That's like your value test of what they're doing. It's pretty slick. You know, it's great. On uh, on uh, this show, Slubs Go Dating, I normally ask all the celebs that. And I, I, it's a sly, but you've now outed my, my situation. <laughs> Love this. <laughs> you've now outed. I'm going to come up with something else now. It's, it's all done. Yeah. The Saturday test. But I'm even thinking, in a relationship, you know, sometimes that can feel like quite a heavy question to approach if somebody's maybe not ready to meet you at that space. So actually, it's a much more... A, a less heavy approach to somebody to say, what do you do on a Saturday? What do you enjoy doing? Yeah. Then asking, it's just, it feels a bit lighter. It does. And then make sure you get the money in. Because I, I used to, I, my career, former career was finance, mm -hmm. right? So I would say, follow the money. If you want to know the truth <laughs> about anything in life, follow the money. I mean... <laughs> 
I couldn't agree with that more. And I think I just, before we kind of carry on with everything regarding relationships, you just mentioned there, you know, you were in finance for, how did you go? I mean, 2008, that's what you said, right? Yes. When you started. That is so ahead of the curve. I mean, now you work as the global researcher as Tinder. And, I, and I'm really interested to kind of see how has when you started in 2008 how have relationships kind of transformed i don't want to say like flipped how have they like grown evolutionized i'm not trying to think what the word is mm -hmm. but how have they changed from back then when most people were just going on dates and texting mm -hmm. to now being able to swipe left or right yeah. and all of the communication is via a phone as yeah. opposed to anything that's like a human connection so do you know you've got that spark with someone because you can't see them and like, how has how has it changed for you because you've obviously gone from finance into matchmaking into a point where it was very still humanized and now it's very digitalized so tell me about that yeah massive difference between 2008 uh and and, and current and we're, mm. we're talking about less than 20 years yeah you know what i mean uh you know number one source of meeting a significant other circa 2008 was uh still was was actually work mm -hmm. uh you know uh, uh the church was actually big there uh whereas now it's it's online you know yeah. it's 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 digital number one method when meeting someone 2008 it was all about what acting like you're not yourself. Mm -hmm. That was when we had books like The Rules. We had books like The Game, which Neil Strauss wrote. And, mm -hmm. and later now he's gone back and said, you know, he, he, he wouldn't have said all those things. But he was really the main person who started pickup artistry. And pickup artistry was all about basically, I'm gonna lie to you to have sex with you, right? It was, I'm going to come up with uh, a facade, my representative, and you're only going to meet my representative. That was 2008, whereas you fast forward to today, and a lot of the research that we've done with Tinder, so I'm really proud of a report that we put out every year called The Future of Dating. Mm -hmm. uh, and I co-authored uh, the report this year and have a, a, a section where I talk about how authenticity is really what is driving relationships today. When I say mm. driving it is, is mostly Gen Z mm. is driving this. Thank goodness like <laughs> that they're driving this. Screw you know? us millennials. <laughs> millennials, y'all messed it up. Gen Xers really messed it up. Baby boomers, I don't even want to see you. You know what I mean? I don't want Get to out. see you. Um, because what Gen Zers have done, which is so refreshing, is that they're basically saying, look, I am going to be myself mm. and I want you to be yourself. That's the key. How quirky, how delusional, however you are, right? That's how I want you to be. Mm -hmm. And the most amazing statistic I think we have seen coming out of Tinder is that physical attraction is no longer the number one determinant as to whether or not someone would want to continue to see you. I love that. Gen Z has said that, and this is what our data has shown us, is that the fact that I feel comfortable mm. in who I am when I am with you is the number one. Mm. Now, of course, they still want somebody sexy. Like they still want to, you know, you still want someone still who looks good. They still want to rip their good. clothes off. Absolutely. Yeah. But the fact that I feel comfortable in my mm. authenticity is more important. Mm -hmm. So you could see that there's major differences between just 2008 and now. And what's even more incredible is what you go back to just 1980s. 1960s, 1800s. Like, I have tracked back relationships since, like, the inception. You know, the first marriage was basically 3,000, roughly 3,000 BCE, 
right? And since then, I've literally been tracking how marriages and relationships have changed. And what's 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 incredible is that as society changes, mm. the requirements and the formations of how we come together changes. And that will continue to be the case going forward. Clear glowing skin is something many of us crave. I know I certainly do. And we're always looking for the next cream, serum or toner to get that fresh face look. But one thing we know for sure is that it's not just what we put on our skin, but it's what we put into our body that has the real impact. That means, yes, you guessed it, good skin always starts with our gut. This is something I passionately believe in because so many elements of our overall well-being actually start in the gut. There is an amazing new regime that I've been using, the first of its kind in fact, that combines these two elements. Bringing together skincare and a supplement routine is a revolutionary step. This was created with the support of Professor Glenn Gibson, who has the most cited nutritional science paper ever written and coined the term prebiotic. The regime includes four hero products and it couldn't be easier. A day pill, a day cream, a night pill, and a night cream. And it doesn't just support our skin health. It's even been shown to help support improve sleep, energy, mood, and focus. So you've got two options if you want to give this a go. The regime is a one-time purchase, such good value because it's like getting the supplements for free. Or you can join the You're Looking Well Club where each quarter you'll get a 90-day supply of supplements and cream. But it's not just these products because there's plenty of other benefits such as free facials, yoga classes, Pilates classes, member-only events, and access to a confidential dietitian mailbox. Head to YLWclub com to upgrade your skincare regime now. Try it today and get the first week on us using the code LIVEWELL25 at checkout. 30-day money-back guarantee. I mean, that really, I don't want to say surprises me because I kind of want that obviously just to be how authenticity does shine as the number one thing. But in the digital age, it really surprises me that that is what the research is showing yeah because it feels really inauthentic right everything online feels very inauthentic yes and it makes me quite depressed <laughs> yes. you know like opening up instagram half the time it's how people want to be perceived yes you know your dating profile is all the best things about you yes and so it can feel very boundary to be authentic in those relationships right because mm. authenticity means vulnerability in my eyes yes and so being vulnerable is being open to hurt and heartbreak. Yes. And also being truly seen. Yes. And when we've got that barrier, we're not truly seen, so we can't really be hurt. Just navigating this landscape, I think it's like it, it, it's quite fascinating that that's actually now what the research is showing. But do you feel that we're becoming more authentic in our relationships? No, because I mean, okay, I, I see, I see the, I see the the, the challenge in this, right? Because mm. it's like we're 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 all living, um, you know, in social media, and social media is is fake. And, and fraudulent, yeah. right? Uh, and we're all being bamboozled. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Totally. Uh, but that's the reason why there's this thirst for authenticity. Mm. You know, a lot of this comes from, because keep in mind, you know, you're talking about um, late teens, early 20s. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Uh, Twingy, who wrote this book, Generations, on Gen Z, I think is done the best job in, 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 in depicting this. When she looks at the generations, what she sees is that Gen X, Baby Boomer, and Millennials all have one thing in common, 
And that is, is that most of the information that we received mm. came from an older generation whether that was on television, whether that was on social media, talking heads, right? I think back to Saturday morning cartoons. Mm -hmm. It wasn't anybody my age making Saturday morning cartoons. It was, you know, someone of an older generation doing it. But Gen Z is the first generation to get the predominant amount of their information from each other. It's not from an older generation. It's from each other. Now, you think there's the downside. They don't have a lot of experience, so therefore that's a downside. Mm -hmm. But the upside is that the information is more accessible, right? Mm -hmm. They're getting this information. They have basically secluded themselves, right? And said, we're, we're going to get most of our information, most of our know-how from, from each other. Mm -hmm. And as they live in this facade of a social media world, they become tired. Mm -hmm. And that's where this thirst of, I want authenticity, I want real. You know, another major trend that's indicative of this push for authenticity, sober dating. One of the that's becoming big. One of the biggest trends mm -hmm. right now globally, and when I say globally is in Western mm -hmm. uh, nations, uh, is sober dating. Now, why? It's because when you're not sober, you're really a percentage of yourself. Mm -hmm. You're not your full self. Mm -hmm. And to your part of being vulnerable, being seen as your true self. That's really what has driven sober dating. Mm. So Gen Z has gotten it right. Now, you asked about authenticity generally. There's a researcher named Eli Finkel mm -hmm. uh, in New York, and he has written a beautiful book called The All or Nothing Marriage, right? And in this book, he talks about something that I, I deeply believe in, and that is, is that if you look at uh, marriages now mm -hmm. and you study satisfaction rates, you'll see that most marriages are, what do you think, higher or lower satisfied than they were just 20 years ago? I'm going to say that 20 years ago, people stayed in relationships because they felt that they needed to. So they just kind of got on with it. Whereas I think the ones that have stayed together now are the ones that are still happy because they don't feel like they need to stay in that relationship. They're probably more satisfied because they've stayed in the relationship, because they want to. Okay, but so you're saying the ones who have stayed in the relationship are more satisfied. Yeah. Yeah, all right, so that was a brilliant breakdown. I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> like you, you, you got an A. Because you got an A plus on that, yes. actually. You got an A plus. Because what the research, this is Eli Finkel's research, mm -hmm. it shows that on average, 80% of marriages are less satisfied than they were. So the majority are less satisfied. However, 20% mm -hmm. of marriages are more satisfied today than they were 20 years ago. And it's wow. to your point. It's because we now stay together for satisfaction. There's other reasons why folks stayed together back mm -hmm. in the day, right? Mm -hmm. So to connect this all to the question around authenticity, 20% of us, right, you could argue, are more authentic in our feelings mm -hmm. than we ever were, mm -hmm. but the majority are not. I find this really fascinating. So we're talking about marriages. Now you've been married for 21? Yes, well, this year will be 22. 22, yeah. I was like, damn it, yeah, yeah. Ma, I know I'm gonna be on the cast. <laughs> so yeah. when this is released, it will be 22 years. And I mean, you've gone through a lot of your life with your partner, right? Yes. You're even, you've even been in the same job together i mean you're yes. i mean i really want to get into your story i mean literally that she's 
you know, opened up her retirement fund for you guys to make this career work in matchmaking. I mean, that's just beautiful in itself. Yes. Crazy, but beautiful. And you've obviously gone through, you know, your own ups and downs on your own story together, as every marriage does. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been in a relationship for two years and I'm in my mid-30s. So I've seen friends get married, friends get divorced, long, 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 long relationships and then a breakup friends and mostly girls that have just always been in bad relationships i've kind of had so, i've seen so many different varieties of relationships in my friendship groups and you know just surrounding me and then you said something to me which is really interesting and you were like how long have you been with your partner and i said oh you know two years and you were like that's a sweet spot yes and i was like on the edge of my seat <laughs> what do you mean that's the sweet spot i'm thinking this is going to be good or bad please tell me about this two-year mark because obviously being myself i've seen friends get engaged after three months friends get engaged after seven years mm -hmm. you know it's all so different and i can't give a rhyme or reason but this feels very hopeful what you're about to tell me yes yeah absolutely i was like you're he you're here you've arrived <laughs> i don't know what i've arrived to but i've arrived <laughs> you've arrived you've done it uh this is big and this is one of those stats that has i, I just haven't seen um you know a lot of news around it and it, it deserves news and i write about it in my book when people are together for roughly two years and then they decide to get married. So this, mm -hmm. this is the, the data around this. Their divorce rates are very low, 20 to 22% on average, very low compared to more standard divorce rates in the UK or the US, which are between 35 and maybe 42%, right? Why is that the case? It's the case because when you have committed to someone mm -hmm. for two years, you've committed to them for two years, mm -hmm. you've been able to see them in all of their seasons of life. You've seen your partner up, mm -hmm. your partner's seen you up, mm -hmm. you know? You look like you're winning right now, I'm so, like, you're, uh, you're, so you're, yeah, you're up, you know? I've got the good news. <laughs> you are winning right now, right? <laughs> but 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 I'm sure you've been down, Yeah. And your partner's been down. You've been sideways, yeah. you know what I mean? When I was dating my wife, during that two-year period, my grandfather passed away, and I was able to see her in a moment of extreme stress, on, in, in, in my case, I was able to see, is she consistent? Mm. Can I trust her? Trust is when you know the person who stands before you today is going to show up for you in that mm. same way tomorrow. No matter the circumstance, they're mm. going to be there for you. Mm. I was able to see that. She dropped everything. She drove me eight hours to the funeral. I mean, she went over and beyond. And I, I literally remember saying, Grandpa, I'm, I'm, I'm going to marry her. But it's the same thing on, on her end. Mm -hmm. She went through hardships. And so in that two-year period, you see that and you can test what is that. And you know what that is? Technically, mm. in science terms, that is called low neuroticism. If you have someone, if you have a partner who in a time of stress, they act differently, they're neurotic. Wow. And that's someone who's not extremely stable. And having an emotionally stable partner mm. is very important, mm. very, very important. And that does speak to attachment style as well. But that's why the two-year gap is, two-year period is so important. So now, if you look at people who have been in a relationship for less than two years and they get married, you know what their divorce rate is? Double. Sky high. Sky high, right? Sky high. If you look at people, now this is the wild thing. If you look at people who have been in a relationship for five years, 
six years, seven years, and then they get married. You know what their divorce rate is? Oh, gosh. I've got 50-50 of raffle down. It's sky high. It's sky high. <gasps> why? Because why are you getting married after eight years? Why? Because one person definitely did not want to, and one person really wanted to. Mm-hmm. So one person now is doing something that they don't want to do. They don't want to be in the relationship. They probably were not commitment ready to begin mm. with, right? So that two-year period is so important. And I'm not saying that's exactly two years for everyone, mm-hmm. but you need to see your partner go through the ups and downs of life. Mm. Your partner needs to see that in you. Can you resolve conflict when you go through the ups and downs? Do you still feel satisfied? right? Do you still feel like you can trust your partner? And then the other last piece, this is so important, is do you believe there are other options for you? What a lot of the studies tell us is that if you believe, so you, you, could, you could feel like you have trust with your partner. You could feel like you have high satisfaction. You can have figured out how to resolve conflict. So you have good communication. You could have those three things. Mm. But if you or your partner feels as if there are other options for them that they believe are higher quality options, then you are going to have most likely a miserable relationship. You're going to have a low satisfactory relationship. So other high uh, value options is what is, you know, from from a science standpoint. Totally, but how would you know that? Well, how can you get into someone's mind and know if they've got these other options? First is, it's actually not about knowing that you have the options, it's about <laughs> the perception. You think you have these other options, okay. right? Now, you see that show up in behavior. Mm-hmm. So for example, do you feel like your partner's always comparing you? No. Yeah, I, I, I should say. <laughs> I'm sorry. God, if I, imagine if this all came out on the show and it all happened that it was two years and it's a disaster. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just saying generally, generally speaking, you know, just generally like, speaking. Forgetting we're on a podcast, I'm like just no. answering my relationship life. <laughs> but partners will do that. You see, you'll see a partner always comparing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You'll see a partner talking about. Hey, you know what? I, I I can do anything I want, right? You can see it in the behavior. Mm-hmm. If your partner doesn't believe there's anyone better for them, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I believe your partner thinks this, and I believe you think this about mm-hmm. your partner. I felt that way about my wife. I was like, she is the best person that could ever come into my life, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, and, and to be very, very frank. I think it's important to think about this like holistically. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that there's no one on this planet that is more, that is physically more beautiful than my, than my wife at that time? Was I Mm -hmm. saying that? No, I, I wasn't saying that. I think there were. I love that you're being truthful about that as well, because so many people just lie and yeah. say, "No, she's made special person she, she's in the most world." When I think about my life and my path to well-being, because mm-hmm. that's really what we all are on a path for. For this is what the show is all about. We are all on a path to full well-being, mm-hmm. and a strong partner can help you get there faster. I can't agree with that more because when I've been in bad relationships. Everything else around me has suffered. Mm. You know, my work suffered. My friendships have suffered because my headspace has not been great. I've not fully shown up as myself. And when you're in a nourishing relationship, everything else just feels a bit easier. Because you've got strength. 
oh my gosh, you, you have strength mm. and you have much lower stress. Mm. I fully believe that it is stress that is your partner's one of two things. They either magnify stress or they reduce it. Mm. The, the, with them, they're a sanctuary. And between the two of you, you fight off the stress mm-hmm. or they bring more stress into your life. Mm-hmm. My wife, I knew in that two-year period, I was like, she's a sanctuary. Everything with her is better. I want to live like this for the rest of my life. Mm. I want to live in this state of you know peace and nourishment right for the rest of my life. And what you know, uh, I'm sure you you are a big fan of uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, mm-hmm. right? And you know he he stress talks stress in the body, stress in the body, and there is a study that he often repeats that I find to be so like illuminating around this, and that is two thousand women in the United States. Have you heard this one? No. Where okay, so two thousand women married mm-hmm. in the United States, all going through some type of challenge in their relationship. One half of them didn't talk to anyone about it. The other half talked to either a friend or a family member or a counselor, a therapist. Mm. The women who did not talk to anyone were four times more likely to die. Oh my gosh. Four times more likely to die. And the reason for this is because it was the stress that they were carrying and they were not able to release the stress. And when you get into the biology of it, it was these cortisol levels that were going up. They weren't able to to, to reduce them. Mm -hmm. So to your point, it's like when you have a strong partner, Mm. what they do is they allow you to release the stress. You're probably listening to this show because you care about your health, both physical and mental. That's why I created Live Well, Be Well to share new ways to think about your health. I want to talk to you quickly about something that we all experience and that is stress. Now we can all get stressed about a host of things, even the minor things. And stress triggers the primal response. So even simply sitting in a meeting or traffic can trigger this. This brings me on to something called the vagus nerve. And it is incredibly important within the stress response and for calming our primal brains. This device I've been using is called Sensei. Now, it's a wearable touch therapy device. Research has proven that the vagus nerve activation calms the brain medulla responsible for stress and anxiety. Sensate is a device which uses infrasound resonance. And when paired with the sessions in the Sensate Companion app, it helps reduce stress and improve overall well-being. In 10 or 30 minute sessions, you can feel an incredible sense of peace, reducing all those small moments of feeling stress or anxiety throughout your day. This device is generally a piece of modern magic and such an exciting step in modern well-being technology. It makes the perfect gift or even better, a self-care purchase. To experience a sense of calm at home, work, or even commuting with your busy lifestyle, just go to getsensate.com and use the code Sarah Ann to get 10% off your first order. Well, when you hug someone, it actually releases trauma. You know, obviously it works on the neurodopamine, the neurotransmitters, and you get, you know, oxytocin and everything when you when you hug someone, but it actually also is a trauma release. Yes. Like when you hug someone, you do release trauma. Yes. Just being held, it's such a big thing. I've definitely gone through my kind of spells of really bad health, really extreme. You know, and when I was in those moments, I was in bad relationships, professionally, personally my whole body shut down and I really believe so much of that was because so much was just suppressed inside Mm. and we talk about anxiety a lot today suppression we don't feel that we can voice how we are right 
And so we suppress it. Right. And then what you were saying earlier about social media mm-hmm. is that then in social media, we're, we're trying to keep up a facade, mm-hmm. right? At work, we're trying to keep up a facade. Totally. So if you're keeping up a facade in all aspects of your life, when you come home, if you can't release, if you can't bring down the walls of the get facade and, and get it out, well, guess what? You are going to not only have dissatisfaction, but to keep it real is that you are, it is detrimental to your health and you can die mm-hmm. as a result of that, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's so important. And that's why mm-hmm. I believe who you choose as a partner is the most important decision of your life. I'm just thinking about people listening to this, right? And two different sets of people. Some people might be in an unhappy relationship, right? And they're thinking, okay, I feel like this, but I'm more terrified to leave the relationship because I don't want to be alone. And, I, and I'm and i scared I'm never going to meet someone. So there's that, I'm going to stay in this because, not because I want to, but because I feel like I can't be on my own because I feel very hopeful, hopeless of not meeting someone. And then there's another set of people that I'm thinking about, lots of women around me that, are hopeless that they're not going to meet someone, mm-hmm. you know, because they've had so many like terrible dates. And this also does go for men. It's not just women, but I think I'm just thinking about my own personal relationship there. I'm sure there's many amazing men out there that feel exactly the same. Right. So when we're in this state, right, knowing that having this really important relationship in our life that is one of the most biggest choices for our well-being and health, what do we do when we feel stuck? Yeah. Like, and we have this hopelessness because I think hopelessness is the one of the worst feelings. Yes. Yes. There are millions of people, men and women, who Mm -hmm. feel stuck, Mm -hmm. whether they're in the relationship or stuck because they don't feel like they can get into a relationship, but they feel stuck Mm -hmm. and therefore they feel hopeless. One of the first things that they can do is first is clap for themselves. You know why? Because if they are watching this, they've already made the first step, Mm -hmm. right? They're already being nourished, right? They already through listening to everything that you're doing, Mm. they are learning, they're becoming aware Mm. of the challenges that they have. Awareness is where it all begins, Mm -hmm. all begins. The next piece is then to surround yourself with people who are, going back to attachment, people who are are secure, people who do have a high level of self-esteem and self-love so they can better understand how how it shows up, mm-hmm. what are the behaviors? What are the behaviors of someone who has high self-esteem mm-hmm. and actually lo- and, and is happy? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what, what is someone who's hopeful? Mm-hmm. H- how do they act? How do they show up, right? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? That means ma- literally making maybe new friends. Maybe that means releasing some of your existing friends. Mm-hmm. Maybe that means releasing, I know this is controversial, releasing some of your family members. Mm-hmm. There are family members that I have that I'm, related by blood, but I have not talked to and I will not talk to most likely for the rest of my time on this planet Mm. because toxicity breeds toxicity. And so it's very important for us to create a healthy environment, the context. Mm -hmm. So what we're listening to, the content that we're listening to, the people we're talking to, that's all the content. And then what you want to do is you want to move to instruction. What is instruction? Instruction can come from a professional like a therapist. Mm -hmm. Instruction can come from going onto YouTube and reading about meditation or Mm -hmm. journaling or exercising or all of the ways that we can increase our self-esteem. And it's important to be in a place of strength before we start making strategies on exiting Mm -hmm. or before we start making strategies on, okay, now I I think I'm going to date. I think I'm going to get on on a dating app. Well, remember the the best time to work on your relationship is before the relationship. So think about the context, the content. 
thing about getting good inspiration, mm. get getting good instruction. That's how you could begin to create the plan to get out of that place of feeling stuck. Honestly, I think it's like one of those biggest things because I think when you do feel hopeless, you're like trying to find the answer, mm-hmm. and we kind of forget that it. I mean, it sounds so corny to say this, but like it lies within you. But I like it truly does, right? And it's it it it's hard work. I think also that's something that no one talks about. Everyone just goes, you've got to be at peace with yourself. I mean, you're, I don't think anyone's truly ever, unless you're the Dalai Lama, at true peace with yourself, right? You always are going to be feeling something. I mean, it's, it's a human experience. But I think feeling that strength of how you described it is so, so, so critical. Yes, yes. Feeling strong within yourself. Because when you're in this hopeless situation, you don't feel strength. And it's important to make more decisions from a, a place of strength. You know, you, you look at the number of decisions that, that we make on a day on a day-to-day basis. It's uh, it's like thousands. Yeah, it's right? mad. And what we have to understand is that when we're making decisions, when we are not just, um, you know, low self-esteem, but even when you're hungry, like whenever you're making these decisions, what you're doing is you're making poor decisions. Mm-hmm. And then those poor decisions over the long haul end up becoming a poor life. Mm. You know, there was a, a, a study in the U.S. on judges and the sentencing that they gave. And what was fascinating is that as they looked throughout the day, the judges gave out, the at, at the top of the day, the judges gave out, the on average, the lightest sentences. And as they went into the middle of the day, this the average time that they put these people in prison went up. Right at the middle of the day, it, it then went down, and then it started going going back up. And you know why they found out? I mean, the only thing I can think of, which is not going to be the answer, is because they were just hearing so many awful crimes. They were just going <laughs> again, again, longer, longer. That's all I can think about. It was even simpler than that. They were hungry. Oh, my God. Hangry. They were hangry. So as that you got to sense. the middle of the day, they were waiting for lunch. They And so right before, so the worst time... To go to, to to see a judge is before lunch. So anyone's going to go and do a criminal offence, if you get a court order, make sure it is just after <laughs> afternoon tea. Exactly. <laughs> and you know what's wild about that? That applies to everything. So wow. you even think about you're going to see a doctor. We have a little uh, little dog, a l- super little dog. Uh, Not a Dachshund. N- no, no, oh. a, a Chihuahua. Oh my gosh! Yes, a chihuahua. Amazing. He's super, super small. His name is Peter Gabriel. Um, I wish you bought Peter Gabriel here today. Oh, oh I, well, all right. Next time I see, I'm bringing Peter Gabriel. Bring Peter. And uh, he had uh, actually yesterday he got surgery, oh. and I was like, "All right, we're booking the first thing, first appointment." The doctors. So in the, another study was done with doctors, and they looked at the percentage of time that doctors were sued for malpractice, right? And it goes up towards the middle of the day. They're hungry. They're hungry. So the best time to see your doctor, the best time to see anyone, right, is right at the beginning of the day. If you see someone right before lunch, it's over. It's done. And you are really screwed if they intermittent fast. I mean, if you're an intermittent faster and you're you're a doctor, just don't bother. You're done. I mean. It's a wrap. (laughs) It's a wrap. They've not eaten for 16 hours. (laughs) They're going to be really hungry. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yes. You need to do that study. Please. Yeah, do this study. I'm li- my mind is going. I'm like, I now need to do an intermittent fasting with relationship to doctors. Yes. How the how are they diagnosing? But something you've mentioned there, and it, it is a book that changed my life. And I don't want to go into it 
because it's a whole podcast on its own, but I, I do need to touch upon it because I'm fully aware that people that are listening to this keep hearing attachment style and they're probably like, why is she not answering Paul's question and relating what is attachment style? And I mentioned very early on that, you know, when conflict arrives, I want to run away um, or I did. And I feel I still have that urge in me, but I'm trying to work on not running away. And it all comes down to understanding attachment styles. And when I read the book Attached, yes. it genuinely changed not just my relationship with myself, but my relationships. When I met my partner now, I wanted to know attachment style. I wanted to know love languages and I wanted to know attachment style because I think that is such a key area on coming back to our original conversation of communication mm -hmm. because we might not meet somebody who is secure, secure. To say I did do my one recently and I came out of secure and I felt very proud of myself that I've done some work and we can all move there because I think when we're labeled which is something that I'm not a fan of we kind of feel that we're stuck there mm -hmm. but we can work to becoming more secure and you know I might next month go back but right. like you know it's that continuous awareness of how am I navigating this landscape where I'm acting out in a certain way so can you just briefly explain what is secure and then what are the other attachment styles? You, you got it. This is a topic uh, that, that I've done a lot of uh, research and, and, and work on. I, I write about in my book that I think that uh, this has become so pop culture buzzy. 100%. That we're not fully delving into what it actually means. You know what I mean? So. The, the the super nerd is is it goes back to John Bowlby's work and then Mary Ainsworth uh, did a lot of studying and she, and and she actually did some studying in in Uganda and then also in Baltimore uh, and then once once she got to the to, to Baltimore in the United States she essentially was studying the relationship between mothers the, or caregivers uh, and their babies and uh, found that uh, at that time it was three main attachment styles that she found right so one was secure and secure in essence is was a child who, when the mother left the child and came back, so, uh, so, so in this experiment where this all comes from, a mother and a child would walk into a room, right? And then the mother would leave the child in the room and then she would come back. Just a few moments later, she'd come back. And now if the mother leaves the child in the room, the child's distressed. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. freaking out. It's like, oh my gosh, where's mama at? Where's my mom? <laughs> yeah, come on now. And then when mom comes back, if the child just calmed down, it's like, okay, mom's here. All right, cool. Everything's cool. That was considered secure. Mm -hmm. If mom came back, right, and the child was, um, you know, um, kind of hot, cold, unsure, but yeah, mom's back, but I'm still freaking out a little bit, like <laughs> anxious, right? And then if mom came back and the child was like, whatever, like you're here, but it doesn't matter, that was considered avoidant. These were the three main, and there's different derivatives that have come since, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, Amir Levine in Attached talks predominantly about these three. Mm. And the whole notion is that if you are secure, which roughly 50% of the population is, adult population is, mm -hmm. it means that you have what, what is considered to be a very healthy way of engaging mm -hmm. with potential romantic partners. Mm -hmm. Because now people have linked it, like Dr. Sue Johnson, et cetera, have linked it to, 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 to adults. If you are anxious, what that means is that you're constantly believing that your partner, your adult partner, is, is going to leave you. 
that, that, that you're not enough for them, right? Mm-hmm. And therefore, you're anxious in your relationship with them. Maybe you're constantly messaging them, where are you at? You haven't called me, <laughs> right? It's been five hours. We haven't talked. Like, what's happening, right? You're, 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 you're anxious. Mm. Whereas if you're avoidant, you're in the relationship, but you know what? You're, you're not emotive. You don't share your emotions. You know, it's like, hey, love me for me, mm-hmm. you know? And this is where these attachment styles have, 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 have come from. Mm-hmm. But now there's a challenge with these. The challenge with these attachment styles is that we have to understand these are very Western-based. So, for example, when these same tests were given in Japan and the mother walked out and then the mother came back in, you know what the child did? When the mother left, the child freaked out completely freaked out the mother came back the child is still freaking out like oh my god i can't believe you love me what are you doing this is crazy right this is wild. i'm trying to walk away but i can't because i'm a baby <laughs> come on you know and if that was in a western society that child would have been labeled anxious, anxious yeah easily but in japan that child was secure why because that is how the mother raised raised the child. That is that is cultural to be a, to, 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 to be with the child constantly, right? Constantly. It's part of it's embedded in the culture. Mm-hmm. It's embedded in most uh, what's considered collectivist mm-hmm. societies. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I say we have to uh, attachment style is important. But at the same time, we have to respect our individuality mm-hmm. is because your partner may come from Japan, mm-hmm. you know, and if your partner is from Japan and you've and, and, and they take any attachment style test, they're going to show up as anxious. But really, they grew up as secure. So it's important to have the awareness mm. of who you are. Mm-hmm. It's important to have the awareness of, of, of your partner. Mm-hmm. And it's important to understand what that means yeah. to you and your partner. That's the thing. Yeah. It's that dialect, right? It's rather than just labeling yourself one thing and trying to deal with your own attachment style on your own, not with your partner. And because then, you know, you're not actually communicating around, well, what would help me and what would help you? Because naturally that would then create more of a secure attachment. Yes. No, absolutely. Because yeah. secure attachment breeds secure attachment. I'm getting some double A's today. There you go. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you're winning. You're winning. See, I told you, you're winning. I'm all about patting yourself on the small wins and I'm taking them all. So before I came on this, I was, you know, there's so much that I could do this at this episode on. There's so much. I think we could do like a whole series pulled together. I genuinely yeah. honestly yeah. believe that, especially after talking to you today. But I was like, what do people really want to know? Like, okay. what is, what is the most Google question on relationships? Okay. What do you think it is? It's either how, when to leave. Or? Or it's where to find. I did the six most Googled relationship questions. Okay. When is a relationship over is number three. Uh, According to data, this is number one. I mean, I could just be wrong. I mean, the source might not be the best. All right, let's see. But the question that has received a 421% rise in Google searches in the last year alone. Okay. Is... What is ghosting? Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know who's Googling that though? Who's Googling that are a lot of baby boomers, Gen Xers, some millennials who are, who've been in relationships. They are now out and about in the dating world. 
And they're like, I think they ghosted me. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I think, yeah. Is, what, yeah. Would, what, do you, what do you advise if someone gets ghosted? Because, I mean, it's really not very nice. If you're like, why are you just not responding to me? No. If you were ever ghosted, it has, it, 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 it screams who that person is that ghosted you. It screams about um, that they're not ready for a committed relationship. Mm-hmm. It, it, it screams that uh, they're, they're, they're fearful of confrontation. Um, their communication style is weak. Like, it is not indicative of who you are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, um, so yeah. I think that's yeah. one of the biggest things, just push it back on them. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, it's something that's really changed for me because yes. I hold a lot of other people's emotions. So I take on a lot of other people's and they kind of become a bit buried in me. And that's quite hard to cope with. And what I've started to do is actually just go, I see, but I don't need to hold it. Yes. But I kind of push it away. And just that kind of mental narrative in my mind where I'm like, okay, I see that, but I don't need to absorb it. Yes. Is so helpful. And I'm thinking if someone's getting ghosted, and trust me, I've been ghosted so many times, that when that happens, you are like, what's wrong with me? What did I do? Mm -hmm. Did I act something? Did I say something wrong? Like... What is it that they don't like about me? And you start like really kind of nitpicking away at yourself, even if it's not in a romantic relationship. Yes. Right? With like a business relationship or a friendship or whatever it is, you can overanalyze and overthink in your mind. And I think you actually just have to say, what I do is I'm like, I'm not going to absorb that. I love the visualization of mm. it because many of us need, need that. Mm. And then also I think that you could flip it too and say, it could be because of all the things that are right about you. You know, for example, we see this all the, t- all the time is that, you know, a lot of, there, there's two types of dating. Mm. There's, sh- there's what literally in evolutionary psychology is called short-term mating or there's long-term. Short-term is, can I get sex tonight? Long-term is, I want to be deeply intertwined with you emotionally and I want this to last for as long as possible, mm-hmm. right? Now, most of the people dating are in this bracket over here. But you may be in this bracket over here long-term. So when you get in a relationship with someone, you set your boundaries. You're like, I want long-term. We're not having sex tonight. This is how it's going to be. So they ghost you. They're like, that's too much work. <laughs> like, oh, my God. So I'm not going to message this person again. Is that a bad thing? That's a great thing mm-hmm. for you. To be, That's a great thing. Your boundaries, mm-hmm. your higher standards of life, can, you know, is what allowed that to happen. So sometimes it's a great thing. I completely agree. Honestly, never be scared of actually voicing what you want. I think that's so key. Yes. The other thing, what is breadcrumbing and how uh, can one deal with it? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with, 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 with breadcrumbing. <laughs> it's a term that has seen a whopping 333% yeah. rise in searches. I could have put what the definition was. So, Paul, what is it? <laughs> yeah, I only know this because of the research at Tinder. It's all Gen Z, right? Are you one of these people yeah. Googling this? <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm, I'm one of the people putting it out there. <laughs> yeah, is that there's all of these terms, stack dating, et cetera, breadcrumbing, right? Mm-hmm. Which is literally just throwing out, you know... Uh, like you you think I'm interested you know what I mean Mm -hmm. but I'm not all out like you know I'm not going to invest a lot of time right Uh it's like dropping these small little breadcrumbs down a down 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 a path now I get it to know bread at the end yeah but you know what this is the this is the challenge though with the terms yeah is that a lot of these terms where they come from they come from TikTok. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, have you heard this? Uh, like, uh, uh, beekeeping age. 
No, oh my god, I feel <laughs> so I feel so out of loop the no. coolness right now. It's painful. I, all of this just so it's just like a video. Yeah. On TikTok that becomes popular uh -huh. and it's like, okay, dads basically of beekeeping age are sexy, you know? And and so all of these breadcrumbing, stack dating, like uh Delulu, like all all of these terms, Delulu on Tinder, we saw a massive rot, like all of these like trends that s seem absurd. One of the wildest, I won't call it absurdity, but wildest things I've seen on, on Tinder this year is one of the most mentioned phrases was Roman Empire. Take that as a trailer. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's like, so in our year, in our Why? year of swipe report, Roman Empire, I don't get it, right? And Roman Empire came, because of another term. Have you heard of beige flags? Man, I'm really humiliating myself. Oh. <laughs> Amber flag? <laughs> I look like a beige flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's red flags, there's green flags, and then there's beige flags. What's that? So beige flag is, is Roman Empire. What is that? So, <laughs> <laughs> so it is like, a, it's like, it's like a quirk. It's like something that either you or your partner does. That it's not necessarily a red flag. It's not necessarily a green flag. It's like it's a quirk. You know what I mean? And because it's a quirk, it's it's called a flag. It's now it's a beige flag. So Roman Empire is one of those quirks that a lot of people like mentioning because they're saying like, I I I, I like Roman Empire films or I, I read Roman Empire books that are quirky uh, and different. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and that, that they're embodying their quirkiness because they write their beige flag, which is Roman Empire. They're embodying their quirkiness. So it goes back to what we were talking about earlier of we're living in a day and age of authenticity. Because in 2000... And the Roman Empire, and the Ro Oh, my God. The Roman Empire is cool again. <laughs> I was like, the Roman Empire is hot right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> All it's hot right now. I'm obviously not on the dating world at the moment because I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, but it all underscores something good, and that is mm -hmm. authenticity, right? It, 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 it like it embracing does. what makes us different is beautiful because that destroys ignorance. I don't know how somehow we went from breadcrumbing to Roman Empire, <laughs> but like I kind of love it. Yeah, I'm here for it. I yes. think the fact that we're now embracing the Roman Empire through authenticity. <laughs> Yeah, it's wild. It's the Roman freaking wild. empire. Yeah, yeah. If only they could think about 2024 and what that holds in dating back then, they'd be really, really proud. Yes. <laughs> they they really would be. I mean, the Roman Empire did some things, though. I mean, they, incredible. Incredible things. Incredible things. Incredible. But I yeah. love that people are now embracing that fully on Tinder. Before we finish, like, what is one of the most surprising things from working at Tinder you found? Heterosexual men's profiles suck. Can agree with you more. I mean, women are so good at it, and men are just rubbish. I will say that we are bad, and I put myself. So I am a relationship science expert. Like this is what I do. I've been doing this for fifteen years, right? From the science piece to the matchmaking piece. And when I joined Tinder, I was like, all right, well, I need a profile. I need to understand what's happening. So I'm setting up my profile, right? And I get to the point where you're supposed to upload photos. So I was like, oh my god, what photos am I going to upload? Do I have any? We looked through my phone, and I was like, ah, this is cool. I uploaded this, and then I had a call like the next day with the head of development, and right, we're talking about stuff, and they were like, um, Paul, we've uh, looked at your your profile. Um, your photos are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> like, you have terrible photos, Paul. Um, you need to do something about this. And you're like, a book of photo shoots, fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this is what I realized, right? This is in defense of, of many men, in defense of many men. We don't, we, we, we rarely, we're, we're on a percentage basis, we're not taking a lot of photos of, of, of ourselves. That's true, actually. We're not taking photos of our friends who are mm. guys. Like, how many guys, you know, have turned to another guy who's like, hey, hey <laughs> take this photo of me. It's like, it's just not happening. You know what I mean? I, I, um, uh, when I'm filming, I always joke all the time when I'm, when I'm on uh, Married at First Sight or Celebs Go Dating with all of my co-hosts, they're all constantly taking photos, constantly taking photos, photo, 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 photos. I will go through a whole series with no photos. Like no, I've I've not taken. How do I share that? Like being on the show. <laughs> I'm not taking one photo. You know what I mean. And so we have a smaller inventory, mm. right? But we need to stop with shirt off, leaned against the car, holding cash, holding fish. Like we need to stop with these photos. It's not. It doesn't work. What should they be showing? Let's end this, which I think is great. <laughs> with what is the ideal bio and picture combination for Tinder? I will give you. What on a on a statistical yeah, basis this. is the most effective? I'll give you for men and for men and women. Yeah. So the first is just complete your profile, <laughs> like fill out everything. <laughs> like that's that's where it begins because m- most people don't. Wow. Secondly, is include three to five photos. Okay. And this speaks back to this common theme that I think we've been discussing. That is authenticity. Because mm-hmm. with one photo, you're like, ah, oh, is that really you? With two photos, you're like, oh, I don't know, is that really you? But three's like, that's you, right? So three to five photos. In the bio, embrace your Roman Empire. Man. You know what I mean? We all know what that is now after listening to this. Yes, your beige flags. Embrace all of the things that make you uniquely you. Don't mm-hmm. shy away from those things. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that you feel is quirky, throw that in. Mm-hmm. Add that in. That's very important, mm-hmm. right? And then I would say from a real nerdy photo standpoint is you want to have at least one of those three photos should be a smiling face. And if you can't smile and just take a selfie, have someone tell you a joke. Secondly is have a full body shot, a full body shot. Everybody wants to see the body, Mm -hmm. right? Be you, be proud of who you are, Mm -hmm. show that body off, Mm -hmm. a full body, right? Mm -hmm. And then third is a photo of you doing something that you're passionate about. And please, Make sure it is not you tossing up a bottle of oh my God, yeah. some kind of alcoholic mm-hmm. beverage because that will work if you want the short-term path. Mm-hmm. But if you want long-term, people are going to turn that off. Mm. So if you have those type of photos, three to five, you embrace your Roman empire, you fill out your entire profile, that by itself statistically is going to put you far ahead of most people on a dating app. I love that. We've got like the top Tinder tip. Yes. So Paul, I always, I mean, I literally just, want to keep talking but I can't um because I know that we're getting kind of the end of our of our podcast I feel like I really want you to come oh back gosh, okay. will you come back yes yes I will okay I will. good I will and will you just also before I ask you this last question which is when I end 
with every single guest on, will you also just start invading the UK on your matchmaking service again? Oh Can I help in any way to start leveraging this? Oh my gosh, yeah. You're, you're going to have to be the recruiter. I'll us. be the recruiter. Okay. We can start putting it out on Live Well Be Well. <laughs> and we can start seeing the flood of people coming in. Yes, I, th- I think we would do quite well. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to, to, uh, to, to matchmaking. So many amazing people that are single and There's... they can't find love. Now that I've been here for five years in the UK, amazing I've, I've traveled to 22 different cities um amazing amazing people we need to connect yes i think you're the man all right well I mean, we, we'll have to talk about we'll this we'll talk about it <laughs> this will be serious too so paul i ask this question to all my guests and I, i've only ever had one answer that's the same in over 200 episodes so i'm wow. interested to see what your answer is to this okay so what does live well be well mean to you well you know i'm super nerdy so I'm going to give you a research study. That fits so well with the show. We're so happy with that. This, this is this is the nerdiest thing I can ever. What does that mean to you, Paul? Here's a research study to tell you what it means. This is what the data shows. Are you familiar with Carol Riff's six dimensions of psychological well-being? No, I that, had to really think about that. Then this is my answer. Then that's my answer to live well, be well. Carol. Riff in the 1980s studied all of the top theorists, Maslow, Eric Erickson, mm-hmm. Viktor Frankl, right? Mm-hmm. All of these people, right? Carl Jung, like mm-hmm. all of these people. She studied all of them and she looked at the intersection points of all of their philosophies around living a well life. And she created a dimension called six dimensions of psychological well-being and said that if you feel like you have all of these things and you're moving forward in all of these things, you are living at your highest level of well-being in life. One, personal growth. Two, you have purpose in life. Mm -hmm. Three, you have relationships with others. Four, you feel like you have autonomy right? Control over your time. Mm -hmm. Five, you have what's called environmental mastery. Mm -hmm. You feel like where you live in your community serves you and you serve your community. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, very important, self-acceptance. You have accepted and you know all your pain. You know your demons and you're okay with them. If you have all six of those, you are you're, you're living a well life. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're living with well-being. Mm. And so to me, that's precisely what it means. Mic drop. Could not agree more. Yeah. I mean, I obviously could agree. I mean, I'd be silly not to. But, I mean, I hope everyone's written those down. <laughs> I keep getting trailer, trailer, trailer. <laughs> but do you know what, actually, when did she write that? So that theory came out in the 80s. Uh, and it's not talked about. You know, here, I here, why. You, you know what I think has happened is that so when I was in finance, mm. I was a researcher. So that so so I'm a researcher. That's like mm. my real profession under profession under profession is I'm mm. a researcher. Mm. And what I've seen is that most research is, is written by academics and most academics write for other academics. And then on this side, you have a lot of people who um have limited experience. Mm -hmm. So they have had one relationship, they've had one course, they've had one auntie over here that's had this, and then they they espouse these ideas. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's a big void. And so you've got like the anecdotal 
and you've got like the empirical mm -hmm. and those need to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to do and like with my book and what I'm trying to do with, with, uh, whenever I'm on a podcast is I'm trying to bridge that gap to say, you know what? Both are good. Mm. Learned experience is very important, mm -hmm. but this academic stuff is very important as well. Mm -hmm. Let's bridge the gap. Let's bring it together and communicate about it. Yeah. Bringing it all the way back around to the beginning yes. of our conversation. Yes. So Paul, tell everyone about the book. Oh my God. Before we leave, like we can't leave without you telling where everyone now needs to have a thirst of knowledge for more. Oh my gosh. The, the, the book is called Find Love. And I have been, I think, developing this idea since Sheryl Sandberg wrote Lean In in 2014. Oh, wow. Because when she wrote uh, Lean In, like Sheryl Sandberg, famous for Facebook, mm -hmm. right? She wrote in it something that was very controversial at the time. And that was the most important career decision you could make. And she was really talking to women. The most important career decision you could make is who you marry. But then a few years later, Warren Buffett, right? In his documentary, Becoming Warren Buffett, he said, you know what? The most important decision, period, that you could make in life is who you choose as a partner. And 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 since the, the you know both of them saying that I have been studying this topic. Maybe like no one in the world I've been mm -hmm. studying this topic. It's engrossed you. It is what I think about mm -hmm. when I wake up and, and and when I go to sleep. And so in the book it's it's really the most researched book on how do you find love? Mm -hmm. How do you go about doing it? Mm -hmm. Whether you are just starting, mm -hmm. whether you feel like you're in a relationship now and mm -hmm. you want to determine is this the right partner for me are you at two years are you at two years like all of these pieces that's what the book is and i and i think it's it, it is very important because who we choose as a partner will dictate whether we have a happy life long lasting life we make more money a stronger partner the research shows us dr waldinger out of harvard university mm -hmm. his book the good life it shows us that you have a strong partner you get those things if you choose a weak partner mm. you know what you get you get more stress mm -hmm. you get more dissatisfaction mm. right you have a more miserable life with a weaker partner mm -hmm. so we want this mm -hmm. how do you get this that's the book and it's called fine love fine love yes oh my gosh well we will put all of this in the show notes all right thank you so much thank you for coming on the show please do it again this has been a blessing it's, it's been, been great. amazing yeah. thank you congratulations on the two years <laughs>